fourth week of, of Advent, uh, a season observed in many Christian churches, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, dating all the way back to the fourth century. So roughly about 1,700 years, churches have been doing this thing called Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. The season of Advent is meant to focus our attention of the coming of Jesus into the world, the joyful uh, celebration of his first coming. As we look at the birth of the Savior uh, among the feeding troughs of Bethlehem, rejoicing at the wonder of the eternal God humbly stooping down in order to raise you and I out of our helpless state. But it's also uh, the hopeful anticipation of his second coming, as we've talked about for weeks now, as we look to that day when he will return and make everything sad, untrue. There will never again be a December 26th. Uh, we, we lament the brokenness of the world and of ourselves this time of year just as much as, as celebrating the baby in the manger. We yearn for Jesus to come back and set all things right. As I've said for, for weeks now, it's an impossible task, emotionally speaking, because we're meant to feel, uh, feel the fullness of joy as we think about the baby in the manger and yet long for something better as we think about the returning king. And those are meant to function like tandem uh, dual engines on a jet plane. We're meant to feel the fullness of joy and, and the fullness of, of longing. And so my hope is uh, that, that we wouldn't go through this season that has almost come to a close indifferent to God's presence, this Advent season, that we wouldn't be caught up in the, the motions of dead, empty, uh, ritualistic religious practice that, that seeks to keep God at bay, but rather that we would plead with God to break in, that we would plead with God to break through, that we wouldn't wake up tomorrow and the next day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, just kind of going through the, the motion, so to speak, but, but that we would plead with God to, to awaken our hearts, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, to the beauty and wonder of who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. I'll give you a condensed version of a quote that I've been sharing for the last few weeks from Robert Weber's book, Ancient Future Time. He says, we live quite comfortably with God at a distance. In times like these, our personal experience is akin to Israel's before the birth of Christ. It is also similar to the condition of the world today, a world that is still largely indifferent to its creator, the one who alone can give it meaning and purpose. Our lives, as well as those of Israel, the church, and the world, pass through rhythms of cold indifference, and then God breaks into our lives and we become open and receptive. In the twists and turns of these alterations, we're called to a new awareness of life, to new commitments, to a new conversion of the soul. Whenever this happens, he says, an advent has occurred, for advent is the time when God breaks in on us with new surprises and touches us with a renewing and restoring power. So if he hasn't already, my prayer is that God would do a little interfering in your life this Advent season, that he would, to use Weber's language, that he would break in on you with new surprises, that, that he would touch you with a renewing and restoring power, that, that he would shatter any sense of complacency that you might have, any sense of spiritual apathy that you might have, that, that he would lead you to declare two things with fullness of heart, both glory to God in the highest as you think about the birth of Jesus and amen, come Lord Jesus, as you think about the return of the King. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 40. We just heard it read aloud. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can take that with you if you don't own a Bible or the one you brought with you is difficult to track with in terms of its translation. As you're opening, let me, let me pray for our time together in God's word this morning. 
God, life is incredibly busy for most of us in this room right now. In some ways, it's a good busy. We're happy to be busy in, in some of the things that tend to happen this time of year. In other ways, not so good, kind of busy. And in the midst of both, certainly we come in this morning and perhaps many of our minds are distracted, maybe thinking about what needs to be wrapped after lunch, what needs to be baked, who needs to, to be invited to this thing or that thing. So many things uh, on the forefront of our minds right now And yet we have an incredible opportunity as we do every single week as we gather in this place to sit with the glorious divine revelation of the almighty God. I pray that that would not be lost on us. The wonder that you haven't left us to human speculation, but rather you have revealed yourself in the scriptures to us. You have revealed yourself in the face of Jesus Christ to us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move mightily to push those things that that await us later in the day and tomorrow to the back recesses of our minds so that we can focus in on your glorious word, God, as we'll see, a, a word that does not return void. God, I pray that through our time in the scriptures, Spirit of God, that you would stir us, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts with wonder, that you would break in on us with new surprises, maybe things we haven't seen in your word before, that you would touch us with a renewing and restoring power, that you would use your mighty word to shatter any sense of complacency that is within us this morning. God, so that we would leave this place and the song of our hearts would be glory to God in the highest and at the same time, amen, come Lord Jesus. God, would you light up those tandem engines of joy and longing in our hearts in these moments that we have with your word this morning together. In the name of the mighty King Jesus, I pray, amen. So if you haven't been around with us, maybe there are some some people here, uh, some out-of-towners visiting with family members. We kind of do a trade this time of year. We lose some people to travels, and we we gain some, and we'll see that uh, in in mass tomorrow evening. Um, If you are new up to this point in this Advent series that we've been tackling for the last few weeks, we've been looking to the book of Isaiah, and we've predominantly stayed in the earlier chapters of the book of Isaiah The first 39 chapters of the book, which is where we've spent time over the last few weeks, you have this heavier emphasis on God's judgment in response to Israel's rebellion with messages of hope and restoration sprinkled in. When you get to chapter 40, which is where we are this morning, there's a shift that takes place. The book of Isaiah shifts to Isaiah seeing the time when God's people will suffer in exile in Babylon with promises of comfort and deliverance taking center stage on through the rest of the book. E.J. Young, in his commentary, he says it this way. He says, when one turns from the 39th to the 40th chapter, it is as though he steps out of the darkness of judgment into the light of salvation. And what that means is that you should be very encouraged this morning when you leave this place. Look no further for the light of salvation than the very first words of chapter 40. 
Look at verse one. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, that, that though God's people have brought the judgment of God upon themselves through their rebellion, God still identifies with them. You see that? Comfort my people, says your God. He even calls them Jerusalem in the midst of the exile in Babylon. These verses scream of the undeserved, unmerited grace of God. You can just hear exiled Israel asking, has our sin separated us from God forever? In the midst of of their deflation, in the midst of their demoralization, in the midst of their defeat, God delivers this emphatic, no, salvation is of the Lord, not based on the fidelity of Israel, but on the promises of God. God had promised that judgment would come, and it did. Now he promises that pardon will come, and it will. But how? We ask this question a lot around here. How can, how can God pardon the iniquity of rebellious sinners? Certainly can't be based on human merit, can't be based on intrinsic lovability, can't be based on moral fiber, can't be based on impressing some divine elf on the shelf. Israel finds herself in exile because of her lack of moral fiber. She's failed to impress God. The world says that there are naughty people and nice people, and God loves the nice people, so be a nice person, and God will love you. Gospel says there are no naughty and nice people. There are naughty people in Jesus who came to save naughty people like you and me. How can God pardon the iniquity of rebellious sinners? Answer, you read it further on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, by laying our iniquity on Jesus Christ. We'll get there in a moment. But continuing on in Chapter 40, verse three, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places like a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here you see the Same language that we saw last week in Isaiah 35, a highway in the desert. But this time, the highway is not for God's people. This time, the highway is for God as he comes to rescue his people. John the Baptist referred to this part of Isaiah chapter 40 as he called people in his own generation to repent. You can read about that in the gospel accounts as he prepared the way of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who would level the mountains of religious pride, you might say, the one who would lift up the valleys of the poor in spirit, the one in whom, verse five, the glory of the Lord would be revealed. Paul tells us that that the glory of God is made visible in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. The author of Hebrews declares Jesus to be the radiance of the glory of God, that Jesus is the glory of God revealed, the visible revelation of God's splendor, the visible revelation of God's majesty, similar to to the way we know uh, the sun by virtue of its light and heat. We know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus's embodiment and radiance of that glory. I love the way F.F. Bruce says it in his, his commentary, going back to the book of Hebrews. He says, just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, So in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. The Advent is about the glory of God revealed from the cradle to the cross to the crown. His entrance in the world, not based on the fidelity of man, but on the promises of God. Verse five, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I I love this. 
this part of Isaiah 40. As far back as Genesis 3.15, very beginning of the Bible, he spoke of an offspring of Eve, God did, who would come and heroically crush the serpent Satan's head. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Isaiah 7.14, declaring that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, declaring that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, along with this morning's passage, declaring that the Messiah would have his uh, way prepared by a forerunner, namely John the Baptist. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Isaiah 53, declaring that the Messiah would take on human flesh and suffer on behalf of sinners. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Zechariah 9, 9, declaring that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Zechariah chapter 11, declaring that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, declaring that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. The mouth of the Lord spoke in the declaration of his covenant promises to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. You have it in your hand right now, the very scriptures, the word of God, and thus the glory of the Lord has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because when God says something, it will surely come to pass. Verse six goes on to say, a voice says cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That if there is to be any hope of, of good tidings of comfort and joy as we sing this time of year, it, it cannot be rooted in the reliability of man. It cannot be rooted in the glory and splendor of man. Man is a vapor. We're gonna work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes later into the spring of 2019 and we'll see that over and over and over again. Man is a vapor, human splendor is fleeting. My guess would be that if, if I asked for a show of hands, most people in this room probably have no idea of who Bernie Bierman is. Bernie Bierman. He's only third on the all-time list of college football head coaches in terms of number of national championships won. He's right under Nick Saban and the great Paul Bear Bryant, Bernie Bierman. In the 1930s and 40s, he won five championships uh, at the University of Minnesota. And guess what? No one cares. Grass grows, flowers grow, but they ultimately die. Not God's word, not God's promises. The, the French philosopher Voltaire was a, was a skeptic who did a fantastic job at destroying the faith of a number of people in his day. He, he boasted at one point in his life that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the face of the earth, that the Bible would wither like grass, that the Bible would fade like a flower. Voltaire died in 1728, roughly 400 years later, here we sit with the unwithering, unfading word of God. Our comfort does not and it must not rest in the reliability and splendor of man, but rather in the certainty and glory of the divine word of God. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
In other words, God's promises never fail. He never makes a promise that he does not fulfill. The, the apostle Peter refers to this portion of Isaiah in his own writings, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, all flesh is like grass and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fade, fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, Peter says, is the good news that was preached to you. Peter connects Isaiah 40 to the good news of the gospel, the greatest expression of the fulfillment of God's word, the good news of Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, the word clothed in flesh, that, that the incarnate word of God is just as certain as the spoken word of God, that Jesus can be trusted is what Peter's saying, that with certainty he lived the sinless life that you and I could le never live, that with certainty he died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die, with certainty he rose triumphant over Satan, sin, and death. The word of our God will stand forever, and the word who is God will stand forever. God's promise of salvation, unwaveringly certain. Ray Ortland Jr., in his commentary on Isaiah, he says this. He says, God had told Judah to trust him and no one else. They refused and suffered for it. But God does not forsake people who forsake him. He, his promise, his initiative, his imagination, I love that, his grace and glory are our comfort in our failure. You can trust this God even more than you can trust yourself. You can trust this God absolutely, he says. That, that God didn't leave us to our own man-centered redemptive initiatives and praise be to God for that. Like exiled Israel, we're desperate desperate for the undeserved, unmerited grace of God, and we have it in the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this time of year and all times of year. Going on to verse nine of Isaiah 40, it says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What an incredible passage of scripture. No, notice the, the shepherd king imagery here. Not, notice that the arm that rules powerfully as king in verse 10. Notice that it's the same arm that gently tends to, gathers, and carries the flock as shepherd, verse 11. That's Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of, of these verses, he's the perfect shepherd king. We, we focus a, a great deal of attention this time of year on the cradle of Christ, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, as we should, but but that baby would go on to lay down his life for the sheep, John tells us, John 10. The good shepherd from the cradle to the cross. If you're a Christian, you know him. And I'm not talking about some Wikipedia fact sheet on Jesus. I'm talking about a, 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 an abiding, intimate relationship with the shepherd, the good shepherd. You know his voice if you're a Christian. You know what it is to follow where he leads and guides. You know what it is to have the discernment to sniff out the voices of strangers, be it lies or anti-gospels or the voice of the enemy. You know the shepherd's voice and the shepherd knows you. He knows the darkest parts of you, just like rebellious, exiled Israel. He knows exactly what has a way of luring you away from the flock at times. He knows just how deep your sin and stubbornness runs, and yet he has no intention of putting you up on the market. What love and grace, church. 
But here's where the significance comes in Jesus not just being a shepherd, but a, a shepherd king. A dead shepherd is, is not good enough. We need a resurrected shepherd. Christianity is not just about being saved from the, the wolves of sin and death. It's about being saved to Jesus Christ forever. The living shepherd who feeds us, who guides us, who heals us, who, who protects and cares for us. On our own, I hate to break it to you if you don't know this already, but you and I, we're defenseless and stubborn. On our own, we're prone to stray. On our own, we're completely directionless. But the good news of Isaiah 40 and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ is that we're not on our own. The good shepherd is also the risen king. He's ascended to his rightful throne, which is why it's not absurd that we sing songs to him. He's alive. And we don't just celebrate that on Easter Sunday. We celebrate it all the time. Not just from the cradle to the cross, but from the, the cross to the crown in union with him. We can know eternal intimacy and joy through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the perfect shepherd king, covenant-breaking rebels like you and me can intimately relate with our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so I would ask this morning, do you know this shepherd king that Isaiah points to in chapter 40? Are you one of his sheep? Are you a citizen of his eternal kingdom? as we sang about just a moment ago. The good news is you can be. God is pleased, he's pleased to pardon the iniquity of rebellious sinners, going back to verse two. But hear me, and I said it a moment ago, not on the basis of intrinsic lovability, not on the basis of human merit, not on the basis of moral fiber, not because you showed up to a church service on Christmas Eve, not because you drop something into a red bucket on your way into Kroger. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the shepherd king alone. Like exiled Israel, every one of us in this room lacks moral fiber. We've, we've all failed to impress God. But Jesus hasn't. Jesus is perfectly impressive on, on your behalf, on my behalf. And so I would invite you to rest in the arms of the shepherd this morning and fall at his feet as king because he's both. He is the shepherd king. And for those of us in this room who, who have tasted of the shepherd king's grace, those of us professing Christians in the room, how can we not, to use the language of verse nine, herald that good news? The good news that, that God has made a way where there was no way in the person and work of the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus, we can, verse nine, behold our God, which is the greatest gift of the gospel, by the way, God himself. E.J. Young, again, to quote him in his commentary on Isaiah, says, if we have not God, we have nothing. And if we have him, we have everything. The greatest Christmas present that the world has ever known, the gift of God himself. We have a real opportunity this morning, not only to marvel at the, the divine initiative of God, the unmerited grace of God, the unfailing promises of God, but also to herald that good news as we eagerly wait for the return of this shepherd king, because he will come back someday. And as king, we talked about this earlier in the series, he will conquer his enemies, that all opposing kings and kingdoms don't stand a chance when he returns to set all things right. As king, he will also reward his people with the consummation of his kingly rule and kingdom, the perfect bliss of the new heaven and earth, where righteousness and faithfulness and peace shall reign forever. And a shepherd, 
He will gather those of us who are of his flock into his arms. He will lead us into the green grass of eternity. Isn't that glorious to think about? From the cradle to the cross to the crown. Story of Christmas in no way is is a story that we're meant to keep to ourselves. If it's true, it's got to be shared. It's got to be shared. We sang about it just a moment ago. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell people they can stop trying to impress God. Go tell people that they're they're free from this empty chase of trying to to merit his love. Go tell people that, that God has done what they could never do. The glory and grace of the Lord revealed in the face of the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're gonna worship that shepherd king in a number of ways as we do here every week. We're gonna worship the shepherd king through the receiving of communion where we have an opportunity to take the bread representing his broken body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We have an opportunity to sing because he's not only the shepherd, he's the king who's alive and he hears. He hears the very words that roll off of your lips as you praise this risen king.